Welcome back to episode five of the podcast, Own It. I'm your host, Jordan Boritsky, and today we are pleased to be joined by Anna Sway. For 10 years, Anna fenced with the Canadian national team and has competed in many World Cups, Grand Prix, three World Championships, and three Pan Am Championships, most recently being in 2015 in Toronto. Along with being an elite-level athlete, Anna has taken the academic route, completing a master's in rehab science from Western University Canada, and is currently working towards completing her PhD next year also at Western. On the topic of mental health, Anna was diagnosed with bipolar 1 in her early 20s, but suggests that her symptoms started when she was about 11 years old. Despite having bipolar, Anna has been able to live a fulfilling life, being a mother of two rescue puppies and getting married this past October. Without further ado, welcome to the podcast, Anna. Hi, Jordan. Hi, thank you for joining with us. Um, so let's first begin by discussing about some of the symptoms of bipolar you suggested noticing at around the age of 11. Um, can you just explain what type of symptoms you were experiencing at that age? So at 11, I don't think my symptoms were like very clearly mapping onto bipolar one, which is usually characterized by these like prolonged periods of depression and then bursts of manic episodes, which are these periods of like really high elevated mood, um, feelings of grandiosity, like people will go on shopping sprees and spend money that they don't have during manic episodes. They will think that they are the next Messiah and all that fun stuff. Uh, so when I was 11, I started having my first depressive episodes which were kind of strange for an 11 year old because as you can imagine kids are like super energetic and I would be like super lethargic I wouldn't really like want to play or read or really do anything and then at 11 is when I started having my first sort of like delusions so I had this idea that I could talk to the wind and the wind was talking to me and that kind of idea stayed with me for a number of years and it was incredibly real to me it was um like 100 real like there was no questioning it right um and that's sort of what i had i had like the depression and then i had that like long-lasting delusion and i haven't had like my first manic episode yet you had all open about discussing how you were feeling and some of the symptoms you had with your friends and family at that time um not my friends i think i brought it up to my parents at one point and they were like you're 11 your imagination is great like you're a kid and that was kind of the end of it and I don't think I ever really tried bringing it up since I'm curious also was there a point where you said you know what I need to see a professional um and how did you feel going to speak to someone about your symptoms so I started seeing a therapist probably when I was about like 13 or 14 um, but that was for something completely unrelated. It was more like general therapy and like family therapy stuff. Um, it wasn't until I was in my early twenties when I started to basically rapid cycle through my depressive episodes and my manic episodes, um, just for context, rapid cycling is when you're going through these states, like for some people on a daily basis, but for me, it was more like three days of like no energy complete apathy um, and then three days of like not sleeping, partying, like not being able to stop and then yo-yoing like that back and forth. And at the time I was in my second, third year of undergrad and I was like, this is not conducive to anything. Like I'm having a great time on my ups, but like nothing's being done. Um, so that's when 
I went to see a therapist, which is actually a hilarious story because I was recommended um, to that therapist by a friend of mine. And she was like, he's so great. And I went and the moment he walked into the room, I realized that it was my first year psychology professor. <laughs> That's great. I was like, is this a conflict of interest? And he was like, no, no, this is fine. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't like teach you anymore. But at the time I didn't even know that he counseled and he specialized in complex mental illness. So most of his patients are uh, people like myself or somebody who has a diagnosis of like schizoaffective disorder or really complex PTSD. Um, so yeah, so that was uh, really fun <laughs> in a way, but I don't think I was ever like, I think my uh, like ba battle with like the stigma and everything else and like self-stigmatizing came after he was like oh i think you might have bipolar and he was like very hesitant to like label me as anything because he's more like focused on like functioning rather than like slapping a label on you and sending you off and so he's like oh i think you might have bipolar and then i went off on my own obviously being like an undergrad and thinking i know everything and started reading about bipolar and started reading about like my outcomes and kind of what my life could look like and i got freaked out i was like okay life is over we're like never gonna be successful. We'll never have a long-term relationship. Like we're done. And so I went like, when I started telling people, it was like, oh, I have bipolar. Like, you know, you have to be careful around me um, kind of deal. So I started like putting it on myself rather than like the people around me um, putting it on me. Cause like nobody saw my depressive episodes and people just thought that was like great to party with right they were like oh Anna's a fun time like we can go we can like go to parties for three nights straight and she's like totally into it um and they never saw the other side of it so no one was like oh yeah like you should go see somebody or she's like kind of off um so yeah nobody was really telling me like oh you're weird or there's something wrong with you it was like piling on onto myself and being really like new to it and being really scared and thinking that oh I got this label now like life as I know it is done. And so you mentioned doing research kind of into what bipolar was. Um, and to those listening that are unfamiliar with what bipolar one is, do you mind just sharing about uh, what you learned from it when you were researching and just over the years, um, what, what it kind of is and what, why it's different from different types of bipolar as well? Okay, so, <laughs> um, so bipolar one, as I said, um, it's, it alternates between periods of depression where people are like really, really depressed and they're either feeling really sad or they're feeling nothing at all. And for me specifically, it's the feeling nothing at all. So I have complete apathy, not motivated to do anything, not really moving, I'm not really eating, I'm just like catatonic. And then it alternates with periods of manias, which are these periods where everything is great but like to the extreme so you're feeling unstoppable you're feeling extra energetic you don't need any sleep or very little sleep um your inhibitions disappear so people will like go on shopping sprees and spend money they don't have people will engage um in like recreational drugs a lot in promiscuous sex um and like jeopardize a lot of relationships they have so stuff like that and so this is different from bipolar two, where you kind of don't have these full blown manias. You have these like 
kind of you still have the ups but they're hypomanias um as they call them so you still have elevated mood but not to the point where you're completely losing control and kind of going off the rails um and then i believe there's a third type of bipolar which is like kind of the zone where i was for a while which is where you have presence of psychotic episodes and so uh for some people if they stay in a manic episode for too long they can start experiencing psychosis so they can start having um like auditory hallucinations visual hallucinations um really strong delusions um which are like not the fun kind that you get when you're manic when you think you're you know the hottest <laughs> the hottest thing around it's the the scary stuff right the stuff that like kind of uh scares you a lot so uh yeah so i'm somewhere between like the type 1 and occasionally i do have psychosis um but i'm lucky in that sense where my psychosis is like you know half a day and then we're done it's like a work day you clock in you clock out you move on yeah <laughs> um so in regard to the topic of this podcast um uh, you very much own your diagnosis and do not let it interfere with the goals you've set out for yourself um i'm just wondering would you agree that after being diagnosed having a title to your symptoms helped uh own your diagnosis would you agree with that yeah for sure um i think it was really helpful to even like being able to position myself and kind of know what was going on um and then it was also easier to like explain to people it, it had a very like legitimizing effect for sure because it wasn't like oh like I'm being lazy it was like I'm in a depressive episode and so to other people it was um a lot easier to understand that being said there's a lot of instances where my diagnosis worked against me because it is something that's now on my medical file and so I find a lot of um healthcare providers now see any health concern I have through the lens of this is a person with bipolar and so even though I can come in and go to a healthcare provider for something that is completely unrelated to psychiatric care so for example like i have strep throat um they will always go back and always pedal back and ask me you know how are you managing your bipolar which like phase are you in and so i find um that a bit frustrating because it like to them i'm basically a person with a psychiatric label first and a person and a patient second Right. Yeah, I think it's amazing though that you know you've gone on to you you haven't let it stop you. You've gone on to doing a masters, being an athlete, uh now working towards a PhD. I think it's amazing. Um my next question is um was there any advice that you got from professionals in terms of strategies that you can use to cope with living with bipolar? I mean, the biggest the biggest uh advice that I got was to go on medication. and i am completely open about the fact that i am not medicated and i have not been medicated and it's not that i am anti psychiatric medicine i know a lot of people whose lives got completely turned around and they're living the best life possible because they are on a medication that works for them uh for me it was always about um finding a way to work with this because it was in my brain like it wasn't going away anytime soon and so i had to find a way like to coexist with it rather than to directly fight it and so the 
the bulk of the advice was very much like, well, you need to go on meds. And I'm grateful that my therapist uh, was very much like, okay, well, how can we work on identifying your triggers for your depressive episodes, for your manic episodes? How can we make you more aware of what's happening with your brain? What is starting you up? What is shutting you down? And start kind of reshuffling your life in a way to maybe not completely eliminate those extremes, but to either experience them in like a safe environment or to kind of make them a little milder. So they're not completely throwing me off the rails. And so since getting my diagnosis to now, it's been, okay, how do I listen to my body? How do I listen to my brain? How do I, if I can incorporate the bipolar into my everyday life, um, as silly as that might sound. And that's been really seeing it more as like a, a quirk that I have rather than like this illness that is going to rule my life um, has really made a difference. Yeah, that's great advice. And not letting your diagnosis own who you are, you know, you're yourself first and, and then your diagnosis second. That's something I talk a lot about on the podcast as well. Um, flipping the page here now to your athletic career. I'm curious, what struggles did you face, if any, having bipolar while being an athlete? Oh my gosh. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> having a, uh, like psychiatric label where you're, you don't exist in the middle, like your mood is either one of two extremes. Um, and then also have a, also being in a sport that requires a lot of traveling and, a lot of competing in different time zones is like is not fun because the biggest thing that I've learned since I've left the sport is what keeps me stable or more or less stable is like routine, regular sleeping, regular eating, um, not getting super excited, not getting too down on myself, which is the complete opposite of what my comp competitive career was. Um, I would be traveling three times a month um, to Europe to uh, South America, like anywhere. So I'm always changing time zones. So my sleep was completely disrupted. Um, because of that, my eating was completely um, all over the place. Uh, plus when you add on top of that, the kind of pressures that there are in the athletic world, especially in high performance athletics of like maintaining a very specific physique and maintaining a very specific like weight we're not a weight controlled sport, but there was that pressure. And so my eating was terrible. My sleep was terrible. And I was always finding myself in these like high pressure environments where I had to compete and it didn't matter. Like if I was depressed, if I was manic, it's like you had to show up and you had to perform. And so, um, there was like no consistency to my performance. Like if I was lucky, I would have these like good competitions but they would always be because they happen to fall on like a manic episode rather than on a depressive episode because if I was depressed and I was showing up at a world cup like I did not want to be there and it was very clear that I did not want to be there yeah and again I had very good support from my coaches and my teammates but it was not in terms of mental health because like we don't talk about that in a high performance sport. Maybe we are now. I've been out of it for five years, but at the time we weren't. And so nobody really like looked out for me and nobody really knew 
like what was going on. And so they could be there in terms of like, oh, I can get you water when you're competing, but they weren't there when I was like, you know, hey, I'm having a really bad psychotic episode. I need somebody to be with me. Um, Cause they just like, didn't know what that meant. Um, so it was difficult when you're traveling and your routine goes out the window. And then at the same time, you don't have like, you don't feel that you have your social safety net. It, uh, yeah, it was, it was a rough decade for sure. No, I think you raise a good point about, you know, how, well, sports have now obviously changed where, uh, talking about mental health is, is starting to develop into more of a common practice, but back then, certainly, you know, not many people asked about how you're doing mentally. Um, I'm curious, you know, athletes are always told to be mentally and physically tough. Do you believe there exists a stigma in sports surrounding mental health still today, I guess, or when you were competing? I don't think there was, see, I don't know if I can say there was a stigma, but because there was no discussion about it, right? Um, there was no education. Nobody was talking about it. I personally, like, I'm, a, I'm ashamed to say, I don't know if my teammates were experiencing anything. I don't know if my coaches were experiencing anything. Um, and it's not just in Canada, because we used to hang out. We used to train and talk with a lot of other athletes and again like nobody nobody said anything and it wasn't just for like you know depression anxiety other psychiatric conditions like nobody talked about eating disorders and nobody talked about like how they were maintaining their weight um and it was just like those conversations were not there and i hope that they're now because they're incredibly uh valuable but sports psychology in itself is um counterintuitive in a lot of ways to uh overall mental wellness <laughs> yeah i'm curious you said uh you know you didn't really bring up the discussion about speaking of your mental health with your coaches and teammates it wasn't something people really did i'm curious if if you wanted to speak up to your teammates or coaches about it do you feel hesitant to open up about your mental health with uh, your coaches and teammates uh yeah for sure there was hesitation because because then you're thinking like, okay, well, I don't want my coach to see me as like not being able to perform and you take, they take you off the team or they bump you down a spot and you don't get to go to the next World Cup. So you're always like kind of weighing it against the consequences, right? If they don't think you're 100%, like they're not going to take you. There's tons of other people that want to go. Um, so you're like, okay, well, I don't want to lose my spot. So I'm not going to, not going to say anything. Right. And you spoke a lot about, uh, you know, there, you did lots of travel when you were competing. Um, I know after competition, athletes are told to stay even keel throughout the season, not to get too high or too low. But what advice do you have to athletes who confront their coach about their mental health diagnosis? Like, what do you say to them? So if you were to go to speak to your um, coach about your mental health, what would you had wish you said to your coach at that time? If you did go up and speak to them about uh, bipolar and, and your mental health during sports? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Well, number one, I would say don't apologize. <laughs> I find there's a lot of like, it's almost the initial like response when you tell somebody about like a particular like mental health struggles you're having, there's the urge to apologize. Like, no, don't apologize. It's, it's not on you. It's not like a personal failing of any sort. Um, but also like, I think being open and trying to provide as much information um, is always helpful. 
obviously within the realms of what you're comfortable sharing, but if there are specific things that are setting you off or there's specific things that like you're not coping with, um, it does help when the other person knows like exactly what it is um, they can do to help you. And also if there are certain strategies um, that your coach can um, put in place to help you that you are aware of that already work for you, then you know tell them because a lot of the times people don't help not because they don't want to but because they don't know how to and they don't want to be you know doing more harm than good and so like if you're coming forth and you're telling them well this specific thing already worked for me they're like okay great like i can do that for you um yeah i think you unfortunately you have to be a little proactive um, especially if you're one of the first in your sport, in your federation to start having these conversations. Uh, it's going to be a little awkward sometimes and people are going to be a little bit awkward. But again, most of the times it's not because they're bad people. They just uh, don't have the training and they don't have the knowledge. And at the beginning, it is unfortunately up to us to provide those little bits of education. Right. And you speak about strategies uh, before we spoke about strategies. Um, I'm just curious, you know, during, uh, while you were competing, did you have any strategies throughout your career that helped you? Well, okay. So I'm 100% transparent about this and yes, I had strategies. Were they helping? I'm not sure. Um, a lot of them were very maladaptive strategies. I smoked, um, to keep my weight down. I pretty much had an eating disorder the entire time I was competing to keep my weight down. Um, I used to self-harm to try and level off my emotions. So I had tons of like strategies that I employed, but they were terrible strategies. And in the long term, they made everything so much worse. Um, but in terms of like actually like good strategies that worked, um, I tried to maintain some semblance of a routine. So like I travel with the same book all the time. And just like reading the same chapter over and over again was just kind of like my bedtime routine. And that was the one thing that like I could do to like feel that I wasn't completely lost, like in a different country. Also, first thing I'd always try to do is regulate my sleeping um, cycle. So like melatonin was my best friend um, when you're switching time zones, like on a weekly basis. Yeah, but mostly I was not uh, doing so great when I was competing. So now moving on to life after sports and focusing now on your academic journey, it's clear that you have not let your mental health get in the way of anything you've hoped to accomplish. What advice would you give to young children or adults who believe they can't succeed because of their mental health? I mean, like lapses in mental health and poor mental health is something that unfortunately will happen to pretty much everyone. Um, it's like spraining your ankle. Like it'll happen and it'll suck. Um, you can be proactive about it. You can set boundaries, um, especially work-life boundaries in graduate school. I find that's especially um, valuable, um, but also uh, boundaries and routines in your life where you are staying physically active and you are trying to eat what is good for you, whatever that may look like. And you are stepping away from work or from school and doing the stuff that, you know, really sparks joy and makes you feel happy. And you're not doing it for some reason to like make more money or, you know, become a star athlete, but you just do it because you enjoy the process. And that's really like, really important. I'm starting to understand now in my life, the importance of play 
and just doing things because they make you feel good rather than because you're striving for a specific outcome. And so you can do all those things and um, you can put all of those routines in place. But I think there, pretty much everyone, there does come a time where they're not doing so great. And what's really important during that time is to be kind to yourself and let yourself rest. Our brains are like the rest of us. They need sustenance and they need rest. And being hard on yourself and trying to push through just tends to make things a lot worse. And so if you're not doing so great, step one, tell somebody that you trust. And then, you know, if they're down for it, hang out, step away from work, relax. If your thing is relaxing alone, then relax alone. But you got to let your brain rest as well. That's a good point. I'm also curious, are there struggles that you faced in sport that you still struggle today in academics as well? Are they similar struggles or are they different? If you I know what I mean. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's very different. But now that now that you mention it, a lot of it is similar. Like I used to overtrain a lot back when I fenced. Um, and then now I have zero separation from work and life. Um, a part of that is because I am nearing the end of my PhD and like every graduate student will tell you that's kind of the, you like buckle down and you just work basically as much as you can. Um, it also doesn't help that I genuinely really love what I study. <laughs> and so it's very hard to like put it down and go do something else when I'm genuinely enjoying myself and I want to keep doing it. But sometimes I do have burnout and that's when like my husband notices that I've been reading the same sentence like for the past three hours and he's like okay you gotta do like something else it doesn't matter so then like I'll go bake or I'll go paint or I'll do whatever but um I definitely still have burnout I still go through depressive episodes and like I haven't had a true manic episode in a while but I definitely have had some in the past and now I'm in a much better place to deal with it so I can work through my depressive episodes but it's again like realizing that I'm not going to work as much and like being kind of okay with accomplishing like one task or even half a task like during that day or during that week so I don't feel like even worse about myself but um yeah like I, I still go through those kind of um, extremes is just about like restructuring my work and my studies around it a little bit more like if I'm on the up and I have a lot more energy then that's a perfect time for me to be like ramping up and doing more work and since we're in lockdown as much as I want to I can't go out and party um, so the only outlet I have for my for this excess of energy is being academically productive or just scrubbing my house clean I have no escape. <laughs> uh, my next question is more of a general question, um, but was there anything sports have taught you about yourself that you have used with you along your journey, both in life and in achieving a master's and soon to be a PhD? Hmm. I would say that two things. Number one is we tend to underestimate our own abilities and tend to overestimate the abilities of others. And this used to happen to me all the time. I'd be at a competition and I'd have to fence someone who had like 15 years of fencing experience on me, has been to two Olympic games and like just had a lot of legacy behind them. And they were like super good. And immediately I would start fencing like worse than I usually would because I was like, well, there's no chance I'm beating this person. 
and towards the last two and a half seasons, I just, I don't know what happened, but the switch went inside my head and I was like, well, I don't care that they went to like two Olympic games. I'm just going to fence them and see what happens. And then I started beating those people. And I was so surprised. And I was like, oh, oh, they're not like this God on earth. They're just more experienced than me. But that doesn't mean I can't surprise them. And so like to translate that to everyday life, it basically translated to not talking myself out of opportunities. Like applying for grants, you do it so much in graduate school or like applying for work. You always tend to sell yourself short, right? You're like, oh, I'm not gonna get the grant or oh, I'm underqualified for a job. Like don't talk yourself out of the job, apply anyway. And then like put your best foot forward and see what happens, right? Just like, it sounds silly, but like believe in yourself. <laughs> we yeah. tend to undersell ourselves way too much. Um, and then the second one was that I can actually do a lot more and I'm able to accomplish a lot more than I thought. And those things happen when you're fencing, you're like, five touches down and you have like 30 seconds left and you're like I can't do this but then you have to because your entire team depends on you and you do it and you're like oh cool I totally didn't think it could be done but it can be and so you know coming into graduate school I was like oh everyone's so smart you know I, I can't do graduate school and then I did a master's and then now I'm you know closing in on my PhD and I was like oh I can I can actually do this if I put my head down, I do the work, I can accomplish a lot more than I anticipated. So yeah, yeah. again, yeah. I think it goes back to like believing yourself. <laughs> yeah, no, those are two really good points. It's, uh, it's, it's really important, uh, the things you just mentioned. Um, so finally, my last question for you today is how has the COVID pandemic impacted your mental health? Which is another bigger question. Um, certainly no one could have really predicted the pandemic. So I'm just kind of curious your thoughts. I always feel guilty when I answer uh, this question because for me, my like the, the lockdown has actually been tremendously great for me. I am completely introverted. And so like the idea of going to meetings and going to a mall to shop was like terrifying to me. And so now the fact that I can just like, you know, have a Zoom call with somebody without having to like be in a different space than my office, is like completely like a huge relief. Um, it also gave me a ton of time to just like hang out with my dogs and go hike everywhere. And they're completely spoiled now and they will have tremendous separation anxiety once I actually have to start going places again. Um, but they're also my like little support buddies, right? They are my support animals and they're great. And I got to spend more time with them. Um, and also, there's like tons of other things happen. Like I realized that I can eat the food that I cook at home and be perfectly like happy with it and experiment with the food that's made. And I think that in itself has had a positive impact on my mental health because I'm just eating better. I'm not rushing from like one meeting to another to a third thing on campus. I'm just at home so I can like plan my life, plan my meals better and um, you know, people at the grocery store <laughs> stand six feet away from me. And I think that's something that we should keep even when the pandemic is over. I think we can take like really good pointers from the British and like people can cue 
based on arrows and it would be phenomenal. Like everyone would be happy. And so that's why I feel, I feel really bad because to me, like socializing via Zoom has been perfect. And all the like things I wasn't thrilled about got taken away because of a lockdown. And I'm just, I'm chilling with my dogs and it's been great. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> Well, uh, we want to thank you uh, for joining uh, the podcast today. We appreciate you opening up and sharing your story. Um, I know certainly you taught me a lot today, and I hope uh, everyone listening uh, has learned just as much. So thank you so much for your time, and uh, we hope to speak to you soon. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening and tuning in to Episode 5 of the podcast, Own It, featuring myself and Anna Sway. I hope you learned something. Please go follow my Instagram page at ownit underscore podcast and stay tuned for more episodes.